0: at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf.
1: Hi, welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We help leaders identify disruptive trends and develop strategies to transform themselves and their organizations into industry leaders. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. I am delighted that our guest today is Brian Ahern. Brian was one of our first guests, and he is coming back now to talk about his new book, He's the Chief Influence Officer at the company Influence People, LLC. Brian's a dynamic international speaker, trainer, coach, and consultant. He specializes in applying the science of influence and persuasion in everyday situations. He's one of only 20 individuals in the world who currently hold the Cialdini Method Certified Training designation. This specialization in the psychology of persuasion was earned directly from Dr. Cialdini, the most cited living social psychologist in the world on the science of ethical influence. Brian is one of only a handful of people certified to lead the Moment Maker Workshop, which is based in Cialdini's New York Times bestselling book, Persuasion. Brian has authored four courses for LinkedIn Learning and just came out with his first book, Influence People, Powerful Everyday Opportunities to Persuade that are Lasting and Ethical. In this session, we hope that by discussing Brian's book, Influence People, that we are able to help individuals and organizations take the complex scientific research on influence process and put it into practical application. The result of this practical application is more success at the office and peace and happiness at home. And Brian did a couple of interviews with us when we first started on specifically ethical persuasion, lots of practical applications, and I use those in almost every class I teach on leadership. So, Brian, we are deeply grateful for you sharing your wisdom in the past and going forward.
2: Thank you. It's great to be back, Maureen.
1: Before we jump in, give us a little bit of background about why you wrote this book and why influence is so important to you.
2: Okay. Well, the impetus for the book was I've had a lot of people who would go through the training and they would mm-hmm. read Dr. Cialdini's book and it's it's heavy. It's it's mm-hmm. a dense book. He's a professor and and it is really kind of the basis of some of the classwork and people would struggle a little bit with that. And I wanted to produce something that would be very easy to read and practical in its application. And that's really what I see my skill set as. I am not a social psychologist. I don't aspire to be a social psychologist. But I love to learn about that and the way my mind works. It's like, oh, I see how we could apply that here and uh, all these different situations. So I started uh, 10 years ago blogging and compiled a lot of information that I thought, you know, it's time to sit down and pull this together so that Mm -hmm. people will have a a resource to turn to.
1: And as a subscriber to your blog and a reader of it for many years, it's immensely helpful. Thank you. And as you say, very practical. And I think for many of us, leaders and aspiring leaders, the idea of influence is tough. And as a coach, I often have people say, well, isn't that manipulation?
2: That's probably the most often question that I get asked. And Mm so I'm going to share a quick story with you, Maureen, so that your listeners really understand how important this is to me. If it were not for the word manipulation— I would not be sitting here talking to you. I would not have written that book. I would not have started Influence People. The whole trajectory of my career would be different because when I first came in contact with Dr. Cialdini's material, this was back in the early 2000s. Uh, A coworker gave a video of Dr. Cialdini presenting at Stanford, and he was very clear about ethical influence, non-manipulative ways to interact with people Mm -hmm. to get them to do Mm -hmm. things, and I loved the material. It resonated with me because of the ethics, because of the science, and the practical application I was involved in sales training. So I started to use the video in a lot of our training, and I subscribed for Stanford's marketing materials. And they had lots of other great resources. Well, one day, one of their marketing pieces comes across my desk, and it said in bold letters across the top bestseller, call it influence, persuasion, or even manipulation, right in the headline. And I thought, I can't believe they actually use that word because he's so clear about non-manipulative, ethical ways to influence people. So the what I like to believe, the moral part of me said, this needs to be addressed. So I sent an email to Stanford and I basically said this, I don't know anybody who wants to be manipulated, nor do I know anybody who wants to be known as a good manipulator. That one word cannot be helping your sales, but it really could be hurting. Well, I never heard from Stanford, but sometime later my phone rang at work And it was Robert Cialdini's office. And one of his representatives called and said, I'm calling on behalf of Dr. Cialdini to personally thank you. You sent an email to Stanford, and because of that, they're changing the marketing of our video. That's fabulous. Yeah, I was like, wow, that's, that's really cool. And we had this nice conversation. And she said, you know, if your company ever needs a guest speaker, Dr. Cialdini travels the world. And I said, you know what? I sit next to the woman who books our speakers. You want to talk to her? And I transferred the call over and as fate would have it, summer of 2004, he was in Columbus a couple of times to address the insurance agents that represented our company. And that's what got the ball rolling. So I hope that's pretty clear that <laughs> if, if it weren't for the ethics of this, I never would have sent that email and, and the whole trajectory of my career would be different.
1: Well, and I think this is so important because often, again, people do confuse, if I am trying to influence someone, am I manipulating? Mm -hmm. So I appreciate you making the distinction. So what's so challenging about influencing people that would make someone want to pick up your book, Influence
2: People? Well, I think the biggest thing is that most people have never really stopped to consider how to ethically persuade others. But I like to say this. From womb to tomb, we are trying to get our needs met. Mm-hmm. I mean, as soon as a baby comes out, he or she cries. Why? We're not always sure. They might want to be held, burped, changed, fed. but They, they want something. That's right. And they're, and they're going to do what they can to get those needs met. And then we grow up, and, and some people are very fortunate. If they have good parents, they learn socially acceptable ways, and some mm-hmm. kids don't. But you get into these patterns very quickly in terms of trying to get your needs met. But most people never learn how to, how to actually take scientific research and use that to move people to act. Something that's, that I think is fascinating, uh, Dan Pink wrote a mm-hmm. book called To Sell as Human. And in that book, he cites a study of more than 7,000 American business workers who were asked the question, how much of your day do you spend trying to influence, persuade, or convince people to do things that are not related to a sale? So these non-salespeople came back and the average was 40%. So you think about this The typical worker is spending more than three hours of their workday engaging with other people trying to get them to do things. I think when you're going to spend that much time on a skill that's so important, you need to learn how to do it well. But again, most people have never even thought about the fact that there's more than seven decades of research specifically into how to move people to act in an ethical way, how to influence people.
1: So, I'm excited to jump into the content of this and hear some of the research. So, one section of the book talks about hidden opportunities with influence. Can you expand on that?
2: Sure. According to all the research that I've read, scientists estimate anywhere from 85 to 95% of our decision making and actions are driven by our subconscious which Mm -hmm. means we don't fully know why we do what we do. The human mind is pretty fascinating. It learns something, and then it no longer has to consciously think. We relegate it to the back of the mind so that we can focus on other things that compete for our attention.
1: Well, and even worse, in some cases, something happened to us As a young person, Mm -hmm. and that became habit. And we haven't, because it's habit and unconscious, we haven't revisited that what I did at seven or eight or 10 years old shouldn't be the way of doing things at 30, 40, 50 years old.
2: But a lot of people aren't aware of what that thing was and how it changed the course of their behavior. Mm -hmm. So the human mind is fascinating in that it can learn these things. It can be put back into the back of the mind, and it can help us operate far more effectively. But the downside is if it gets programmed the wrong way, then all of a sudden it's like a golfer who starts swinging a club and they're swinging it the wrong way. It's very hard to undo those bad habits Mm -hmm. on the golf course. I think it's even tougher to undo the habits that we have in our mind.
1: Especially if they're unconscious.
2: Right. It it takes something to bring them to conscious awareness. And sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes that's just another person who points out, do you realize you do this or say this under these circumstances? And we are wholly unaware, but all of a sudden we become aware and we have an option now mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. potentially change. Where this creates opportunities for, for people, I think, is because most people are unaware of their own behavior. They don't e- even recognize how they could be potentially influencing others. I think a really good example that most people understand is if you go and buy a new car, all of a sudden, as you're driving your new car in the days and weeks after you make the purchase, you see your car on the road far more often.
1: Everywhere.
2: Right. Now, everybody didn't run out and buy the car you bought, Maureen, and they didn't run out and buy the car that I bought. So something changed, and that was awareness. We become aware of something that's been there all along, but we just never noticed before. And as people begin to study influence and persuasion and they start to understand what these terms are, most people are fascinated by how often they begin to see them. They start to recognize salespeople, marketers, politicians, how all of these people are trying to interact with them to change their behavior, to to get them to the store, to buy, to vote for them. But not only that, your eyes start becoming open to the opportunities that have been there all along, but you just didn't see them. And so that's where I think those hidden opportunities come to the forefront. So can you give some examples of what those hidden opportunities are? Well, I think most people don't recognize something as simple as this. Psychology shows if you interact with somebody and you ask them to do something as opposed to telling them... Once somebody says yes to you, it triggers something within that person where they want to be consistent in what they say and do. And that's because mm. when, when I promise to do something for you, first and foremost, when I follow through, I feel good about myself. But second, I also know that I look better in your eyes. And those are two powerful drivers. But most people never stop to think about that. And so what do they do at work? They're directive. And they tell people what to do. Why do they do that? Because that's probably how they were raised. Mom or dad just told them they didn't ask. Their first boss told them they didn't ask. And all of a sudden, they're in this lifelong pattern of telling instead of asking. But the research shows that if we ask and can get somebody to commit, they're far more likely to actually do what we want them to do.
1: So I assume because of what you studied, this impacted how you raised your children also.
2: Yes, I used, I used to joke with my daughter and say, uh, you're going to need counseling when you get older. <laughs> and she'd say, what's counseling? And I said, well, you'll know soon enough. You'll realize you were my little experiment.
1: Well, but often, and, and you made this point, often <clears throat> our parents are the first people who tell us what to do. Right. And and often it's cars coming and they yell, get out of the street. I mean, There mm. are times that being told is appropriate because it saves our lives. Absolutely. And... And I I grew up in a military family, and there Mm -hmm. were rules and structures, and Mm -hmm. we were the bottom of the food chain Mm because we were the littlest people, and we were told what to do. Mm -hmm. And that was the norm, and I assume that is similar with many families that they aren't enrolled or enlisted to do something they're
2: told. I'm the son of a marine. I get it. <laughs> when when you the grass weren't
1: invited, yeah, to.
2: <laughs> when when the grass needed cutting, if I ever dared say why, Dad, he didn't put his arm around me and say, "Let's go out and look at the grass, son," and explain <laughs> it to me. It, I just I would hear this because I said so, and boom, I got out there, and mm-hmm. and and that's actually another trigger that. When you use that word, because psychology shows pe- more people will take action because subconsciously we're programmed from childhood to comply with. Well, you just know, right? When you questioned mom or dad, and they said, "Because I said so," you didn't stop and say, "Well, that's not a do? valid reason," right? And <laughs> not out loud, <laughs> right? You you got in gear and you and you did it, and yeah. so you fall into this pattern where mm. almost subconsciously, when someone uses the word "because," we fall into line and we comply. Now, I think as an ethical persuader, what I would tell people is ask, don't tell, Mm -hmm. say because, and give a valid reason. If you did those two simple things on a very consistent basis, you'll have more people saying yes and doing what needs to be done.
1: So let me try to model this. Okay. Would you write a blog for this show because we will make a greater impact on our listeners? Absolutely. And that means I can have Susan follow up with you and you'll send me something. Absolutely. And honestly, I absolutely trust that you said it and you will do it.
2: I would. I mean and and, and part I, of, I'm part of, serious about it. So part of this is it's now a public commitment too. All of your <laughs> all of your listeners have heard and so that's more pressure for Brian Ahern to live up to his word. I mm-hmm. want to do it for lots of psychological reasons because of our friendship. I want to do it for some reciprocity. You've had me as a mm-hmm. guest on the show, but you've now asked me and I've made this public commitment. Those are all powerful things to to draw people to do what needs to be done.
1: So as we end this segment, can you give us one more example?
2: Reciprocity is a a great example where when you do something kind for somebody else, Mm -hmm. they feel some sense of obligation to want to do something for you. I don't advocate a give-to-get mentality. I advocate a give mentality, but then when you do need help, you can look across your network and find who are the people I've helped who have the right skill set to help me. Mm -hmm. And those people are usually very willing to help you. Now. As a practical example, when my daughter was a teenager and she's 14 years old and she's becoming a young woman, two-hour showers, boys, all that, the last thing (laughs) she wanted to do was help dear old dad on a hot summer day and go out and cut the grass. And I knew if I said, Abigail, I'll give you a raise in your allowance if you'll cut the grass when I want you to. That would have been a a negotiated reward situation. Mm -hmm. She either would have said, no, thanks, dad. I don't like money that much. Or she might have said, well, how much? And probably tried to negotiate me up. Because you are who you are and you've trained her well. Yes. And and neither of those would be good options. And the worst thing I could have done if I want a good relationship with her is to say, fine, now you'll do it for free because I said so. And then she resents me. Mm-hmm. So what I did was we were in the car one day driving home and I said, Abigail, I'm going to give you a raise in your allowance, $10 a week. And she mm-hmm. said, why? And I told her things that I legitimately was proud of that she was showing mm-hmm. responsibility. But I also knew that when I needed help, it would make it easier.
1: So you didn't negotiate it in.
2: Right. I just gave her a raise. Hmm. A few weeks later, I got ready to travel. And I said, Abigail, I'm going to be going out of town. Would you cut the grass for me? And I could see that she's about ready to tell me, oh, dad, I hate that. Please don't make me do it. And I said, hey, time out a second. I go, I just gave you a raise in your allowance. And I didn't ask for anything. Can't you help me? And she thinks for a moment. She goes, OK. And she's, she doesn't like cutting the grass. But she's never resisted it because she recognizes dad does good things for me. Mm -hmm. And it's the least I can do to turn around and help him. And when you do that, you get a positive relationship. It makes me want to do more good things for her, which in turn makes her want to be more helpful for me. Rather than most people get into a tit for tat and it goes Mm -hmm. downhill, we're in an uphill. And that's a good way to be.
1: So as we go on break, I want to encourage our listeners to think about What is one reciprocal relationship that's really working for you? And for many of us, it's our spouse or partner Mm -hmm. that hopefully we do kind things for, not because we expect. Right. Although there are lots of marriages like that as well. But life seems better when we are positive without direct expectations. Absolutely. And same with colleagues. Yes. Best friends. So for our listeners, think about that for a moment. Brian and I will be right back to talk about influencing people. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.
0: The Voice America Talk Radio Network is on Instagram. Make sure you follow us and comment on our pictures from behind the scenes at our radio shows, live events, and around the network. We want to see what you have to share as well. Check us out on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Innovative Leadership, co-creating our future. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call one 866 472 Five seven nine zero. That's one eight six six four seven two fifty seven ninety or send an email to info at innovative leadership Now back to this week's program.
1: Welcome back to Innovating Leaders co-creating our future. Today, our guest is Brian Ahern, and we are talking about his new book, Influencing People, and specifically about the ethical practice of influence. So, Brian, before the break, we talked about reciprocity and some of the scientific research that encourages people to persuade one way or another and allows us to be more effective. And I appreciate that you're also debunking some of what we grew up with, that many of us without having, without reading your book or your blog or taking a class just never think of. So
2: can you share a couple more with us? Sure. When it comes to research, here's a fascinating study that I heard or I read about that I think most people would read and not ever think about, well, how do I translate that into some real-world application? There was a study that was done where a health insurance company wanted to see if they could positively impact the response to a survey they were sending out. Okay. So to a third of the people, they just got the survey with a cover letter. So they had clear instructions about taking the survey, and 36% of the people who got that cover letter with the survey ended up taking the survey. When they sent the survey with the same cover letter but a personalized handwritten note on it, Mm -hmm. 48% of the people took the survey. So they recognized subconsciously, at least, that this person did a little bit more. It caught their attention, you know, taking time Mm -hmm. to write something there took a little more time. That's a little bit of engaging reciprocity. The third variable was another group got the same survey, same cover letter, same handwritten note, but it was on a yellow sticky note. And 75% of those people actually ended up taking the survey. And I'm sure none of them would say, well, I took the survey because of the sticky note, but it's undeniable more than doubling the response rate. And there was a separate study that was done that also doubled the response rate. So to me, that's that's fascinating. And that's such a simple thing to do. Now, here was the practical real world application. I had done some training for the accounting department at the insurance company I used to work for. I had done some training in the summer. And the following January, we faced a problem. And the problem was this. We had accidentally doubled the commission for 150 agents in one of the operating states. Somebody must have pressed a button. We we paid them twice as much as we owed them.
1: That's a big deal.
2: Yeah, a $700,000 mistake. So as we strategized, how are we going to get the money back? We couldn't just press a button and suck it out of their (laughs) bank account. We ended up saying, we're going to have to have a... Letter go out from the Home Office Accounting Manager, so imagine this or the people who are listening. Imagine you get a letter from the Home Office Accounting Manager, somebody you 've never met, probably never spoken to, more than five hundred miles away, and that letter says you owe us four thousand eight thousand ten thousand dollars. Please write us a check as quickly as possible, probably not the highest priority for the day
1: although ethically, this is your employer, and you know they 've made a mistake i I would question if I kept the money, do I get to keep my job, or do they say that's
2: fraud? So here's what we did. I talked to the Home Office Accounting Manager, and I said, Steve, you remember the study on the sticky Mm -hmm. notes? And he said, yes. I said, if you don't have time to put a sticky note on every one of those 150 letters and personalize Mm -hmm. it, call me. I'll come do it. And he said, no, I remember, and I'll do it. So 150 letters goes out, go out. He has a sticky note. He personalizes every one of them. And I called him two weeks later, and I said, how's the collection going? And he said his exact words, I'm floored. And I said, why? And he said, we've gotten money back from 130 of the 150 already.
1: Wow. In
2: two weeks? In two weeks. Now, the optimist in me said, like you were just saying, we didn't get it all back? Because I think if I got that letter, I would have sent it in right away. Mm-hmm. But he laughed at me and he said come on he goes we're talking about money he goes i fully expected some of them to say it's your mistake you fix it take it out of next month's commission put me on a payment plan he goes anything but to sit down and write us a check he goes i'm floored and when we had lunch a couple months later we had collected money from 147 of the 150 in full and he wow. was and he was just ecstatic so he i mean he talks to people every day about money he mm-hmm. knows how hard it is and he realized this made a huge difference
1: I love the example. And I love that it it was personal in your experience.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. I wonder about those other three. Not that we're going to (laughs) talk about them, but (laughs) if they had payment plans and if that made them look bad professionally.
2: It probably did, but I, I never knew who they were. Okay. And so I don't know that that ever left the accounting department. But so you we're can't. not going
1: to broadcast their name on the no, show? No, we won't. <laughs> <laughs> so, again, you're giving scientific examples. So reciprocity, investing the time to be personal. Yes. Uh, what else? Give us a couple more.
2: There, There's a, a chapter in the book where I talk about potentially uh, doubling your response at half the savings. And a study that I've shared during some of our workshops had to do, again, with, with a survey that mm-hmm. a company was sending out to owners of construction companies. And this was a health company that was sending it out. And they wanted to see if they could get a response rate on this. In one group, they offered a $50 reward. So imagine you get a letter and it says, Maureen, we know your time is valuable. If you will take our attached survey, we will send you a check for $50.
1: Everyone, not a drawing for a $50 reward. Everyone.
2: Wow. Another group got the same survey, but it said, you know, we recognize your time is valuable and closed is a $5 check. We hope you'll take a moment to take our survey. Now, on the surface, most people would go, well, heck, yeah, $50. Neither group knew what the other was being Mm -hmm, offered. mm -hmm. The people who were offered the $50 check, 23% of those people responded to the survey. For the people who were offered the $5 or given the $5 check up front, 52% took the survey. Now, when you do the math, somebody might think, well, sending everybody a $5 check, isn't that going to be way too expensive? No. If every person who got the check, the $5 check, had cashed it, they still would have saved 57%. And if only the people who took the survey cashed it, they would have saved 77%. So you don't have to be good at math to know if you can more than double your results, go from 23 to 52%, and you can do it at a savings of anywhere from 57 to 77%, that's a good deal.
1: So is that because it's an immediate reward versus I have to work to get it?
2: Well, it's not really a reward. A reward is contingent upon your action. It's kind of an if-then relationship. Mm-hmm. If you mm-hmm. do this, then I will do this for you. When you engage reciprocity, it's really I have, will you. Mm. You know, I gave my daughter the, the raisiner allowance. I wasn't taking it back. Those mm-hmm. people who got that $5 check, the company could not take that back. So mm-hmm. is there a trust there? Yes. But what the research shows is sometimes you can give much, much less, okay. engage reciprocity, get people to take the action you want them to take, and save significantly.
1: Interestingly. So I'm just thinking about we run an IT leaders course, And we've just signed an agreement that anyone who takes the course will now get, if they apply and get accepted, get three credit hours in a master's level program. Mm -hmm. So we've given it to them, assuming they can get in so if they have some really crazy thing on their record they don't get to go hmm. but otherwise they, they by virtue of attending our program we have given them something that they weren't expecting mm-hmm. and that we hadn't promised is that then does that play into reciprocity
2: a little bit they they still had to take an action mm-hmm. to ultimately get that so if that's part of the i'll say advertising
1: it wasn't okay. but in fact 100 people graduated from the program and it was never included in the advertising. Yeah. It's a benefit that came after the yeah.
2: fact. So if in that moment, like, thank you all for, for attending here. And by the mm-hmm. way, we didn't advertise this, but you're all going to get three credit hours. And people are like, wow, that is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Your ask after that is probably going to get a much, much higher response rate because they're they're thankful you've mm-hmm. done something for them. And now they're more willing to do something for you down the road. And you have genuinely benefited them, mm-hmm. and you aren't taking that back. And so there's no manipulation there. They, they can have that reward or they can have that, uh, that gift, and, and they don't need to respond to it. But most people will because that's just how we're wired. Humans mm-hmm. have, have evolved together understanding that the more we help each other, the better chances are for survival.
1: And I don't get anything by giving that to them. Right. I don't get my lawn mowed. They get an opportunity, and we're doing something good in the world and helping raise the level of yeah. leaders in yep. the
2: community. And. and that's why I said earlier, I think I think the right attitude is give. Not mm-hmm. give to get. We give. We mm-hmm. help people. But we feel comfortable then when we need the help from other people to survey our, our network and say, who has the right skill? Mm-hmm. And those people that we've helped are going to be more likely to say yes and help us in return. It makes perfect
1: sense. Mm -hmm. So can you give us another research-based example of influence?
2: Scarcity is a huge motivator for people's actions. Okay. Uh, Daniel Kahneman wrote a book, Thinking Fast and Slow, and, Mm -hmm. and he's been involved in the whole behavioral economics movement for decades. And his research clearly shows people are far more motivated by what they might lose as opposed to what they might gain. Mm -hmm. So framing something as loss instead of gain will get more people to take action. Once we understood this at the company that I worked for, Mm -hmm. I worked in the sales area. My boss and I were responsible for trying to recruit new agents to sign up Mm -hmm. for the company. We were sending out quarterly marketing emails to these Mm -hmm. agents, and once we realized scarcity, what we did was we included a single paragraph at the end that simply would say, Maureen, part of the reason I'm contacting you today is to let you know we're only looking to appoint 50 agents in our 30 operating states. As of the end of the third quarter, we've appointed 40. We hope you're one of the remaining few we appoint by year end. That was the only change in the letter that we'd been sending out consistently Mm -hmm. for years. My boss came over to me within an hour and said, I can't believe it. He goes, I've already had eight agents respond to the email. Some responded to the email. Some called him. Now, your listeners might think eight's not a lot, but what John knew was nobody had ever responded immediately, let alone eight. So it it, it leaped out at him that this small change is making a big difference because Mm -hmm. all of a sudden they're talking to the person who is the vice president of sales. That's the best opportunity for us to land a new agent.
1: I'm just trying to think of examples where I've seen that used well. And certainly we've got only a few more slots in a class, um,
2: yeah, that's legitimate. But sometimes people don't think about that. They don't mm-hmm. think about or they, or they might feel like, well, that's going to seem manipulative if I do that. If it's true that there's, let's say, three seats remaining, mm-hmm. you want to advertise that because that will get more people to take action. If they didn't know that, then they might not have signed up and they might be kicking themselves mm-hmm. that they missed an opportunity.
1: I've also seen it used badly.
2: Yes. Um, If you've had people probably come to your house to try to sell you roofing, siding, gutters, things like that, you'll get a false scarcity where they'll say, "Um, if you sign today, Maureen, you can save 15%. But if I have to come back at another time, I can't give you that discount. And the question always needs to be, why? Why couldn't you? And if that salesperson says said, yeah, the, said, if they said, well, I've got to go see so many other clients, their close ratios are not very good. That's a hard sell to, mm-hmm, to make mm-hmm. that. So I would always look them in the eye and say, really, so if I guarantee you a sale tomorrow, you're going to roll the dice and go see all these other people hoping to make a sale, but I'm going to guarantee, but you won't give me that price. It's false scarcity. There's nothing scarce there. They're just using it as a manipulative tactic to get you to sign that night.
1: Okay, and that that's the kind of thing I've seen, yeah, and why it when you said scarcity, I think of those poorly used, yes, so I appreciate the example. And do you have another one? Another good example of scarcity?
2: A good example of scarcity. I like when I talk with wealth advisors,
1: mm-hmm.
2: I've always told them that to have a conversation, if i were if I were a wealth advisor and I said, Maureen, Uh, Given your income, given your age, then the number of years you say you're going to continue to work, if we can get you to save just 1% more on your income, that's going to get you an extra $100,000 in your retirement account. Now, that's motivating. But what would be far more motivating would be to say, Maureen, given your age, the number of years that you say you're going to work and your income, Mm -hmm. if we can't find a way for you to save just 1% more, by the time you retire, you'll have given up $100,000 that's much more motivation. Yes, because you kind of feel that in your gut. You almost feel like it's your 100000 That I've given up. Yes. It's the same 1%. It's the same $100,000. But I tell you, there will not be a single client of a wealth advisor who will come back and go, darn you for scaring me into saving the 1%. <laughs> what am I going to do with this $100,000? they are going to say, thank you. I didn't realize what was on the line. Mm-hmm. And so... I think people really need to think through how am I going to make this presentation because if I do it incorrectly, I'm not going to get nearly as many people taking actions that would benefit them. You know, you're mm-hmm. having that extra money will benefit you over the rest of your life. Do I get something out of it? Sure. I mean, depending on how the mm-hmm. the commissions and things mm-hmm. are set up. But you've created a situation where both people are winning, and, and that's good for everybody.
1: Okay, and so that's the non-manipulative part. We all win yes. by doing this. There is a, an intentional positive outcome.
2: Yes. If somebody is only out for themselves, that's not ethical influence. They've got to be considering what's, what's good for the other person, too, and what's good for me, too. And mm-hmm. if both people can leave that situation feeling better off... And I say that you've done and and that you've been honest about how you Mm -hmm, convey the mm -hmm. information, then I think you've been acting as an ethical persuader.
1: Perfect. So we're going to go on break again. This is Brian Ahern, Maureen Metcalf, and we're talking about ethical influence. And as we are on break, I encourage you to think about how have you used or could you use the idea of scarcity to ethically help influence someone's behavior where they will benefit from that influence. Mm -hmm. We'll be right back.
0: Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today.
1: If you're an entrepreneur, you want to focus on the big picture. But a growing business requires compliance, regulations, tax issues, and more. Listen to Candy Messer and BizHelp for you. Our program takes the guesswork out of the equation in order to give you the answers in peace of mind, from payroll to labor laws to entrepreneurial tips. You'll find something new with each week's episode. This help for you can be heard every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel
0: your favorite voice america talk radio network shows and hosts are in your car outdoors and wherever you need them to be listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market voice america business network the bottom line in business
1: Welcome back to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. You are with Brian Ahern and Maureen Metcalf, and we're talking about Brian's new book, Influencing People. So as we talk about moving into the third segment, how do we put this in practice? And Brian has been brilliant about sharing practical ideas anyway. So can you share a couple more practical ideas any listener might start using today? Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. So we'll go back to one of the first things that I shared. Stop telling and start asking. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: All the studies show that once somebody says yes to you, Mm -hmm. they're far more likely to take action. And then shut up. (laughs) So so think about this, Maureen. You can implement that very easily. But then Mm -hmm. we also talked about the word because. So take one more breath and say because and let them know why you want them Mm -hmm. to do something. And then thirdly, I would say give a time frame that allows you some fallback. So if I need you to produce a report by Friday, the worst thing I can say is, Maureen, I need, I need the report by Friday. I want to mm-hmm. say, Maureen, can you or would you get me the report? Maureen, would you get me the report because I need it? And then I can tell you why I need it. But the best persuaders are going to say something like, Maureen, would you be able to get me the report by Tuesday because I need to get it ready for the board report? If you say, no, I can't do it by Tuesday, I can fall back to Wednesday or Thursday. I still have plenty of time. And why that's important is because it engages reciprocity. When someone says no to you and you immediately come back with another request, the odds of them saying yes go up rather dramatically. Ah. So I don't want to put myself in a situation where if you say, no, I have no fallback and I'm dead in the water and I mm-hmm. what am I going to do about that report? So it's perfectly legitimate for me to ask for it by Tuesday. So I have lead time to do what I need to do. Mm -hmm. But I also realize if you say no, I can fall back to Wednesday. And so if you were to say no, I might say, Maureen, I, I recognize things are really busy here. Is there any chance you can get it to me by Wednesday? Because as I said, I still need to get it ready for the board report. That approaching somebody by asking instead of telling, by using the word because, by giving a reason and having fallback positions. If you operate that way consistently, you're going to have far more people doing what you need them to do because psychologically, all the studies show it will be easier for them to say yes to you. So that really combines a lot of different pieces into something that people do every day, which is asking or Unfortunately, most are telling. But mm-hmm. They should be asking people so they can get things accomplished.
1: So I'm taking notes as we talk. So I'm going to repeat back what I've heard. And okay. let's see if I can get this right. So first is I ask. So can I get this report by Friday? Let's talk about your blog. You um, can use okay. it on me. So, so I don't remember our air date. But say we air next month. I think okay. we do. So let's say... We're recording in August, say we air on September 15th. Would you be able to get me the blog the week before? We we post it on Mondays, so if you can get it to me the Monday before, that will allow Susan and Eric time to match it to the radio show, find graphics, Mm -hmm. and get it staged so that we are posting on time on Monday morning, because often we do it late when we get information late.
2: Yes. Yeah. So... Just by by asking instead of telling, Mm -hmm. by this day, Mm -hmm. because they need to do these things to Mm -hmm. get it ready so that Mm -hmm. we can air. So just kind of condensing that all down, that's perfect. And whatever date you put out, if for some reason I would say, "Uh, Maureen, you know, I can't. I'm going to be on vacation the first three days Mm -hmm. that week. You want to be able to say, hey, that's okay. How about this? And that's where I also perceive you're flexible. I Mm -hmm. appreciate the Mm -hmm. flexibility. It makes it so much easier for Mm -hmm. me to say, yeah, I, I can certainly meet that date.
1: Great. That seems easy, but it is not consistently applied, I'm assuming. it's Or he, you wouldn't be writing
2: this book. Yes, because it needs to – well, most people don't think about that. Mm-hmm. But even people who are listening, it requires a behavior change. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you may have been telling people what to do for two, three, four decades, and now you're having to stop. And, and there will be some people, quite frankly, who might think, I'm the parent. I shouldn't have to ask. Or I'm the boss. I shouldn't have to ask because their parents or their boss doesn't ask. But I would challenge people to say, if you are looking to be most effective, if you want to up the odds that your kid will clean their room or that the employees will do what you want or vendors, whomever that is, mm-hmm. try doing something different. Because if you can get a bump of 10, 20, 30, 40% or more, and some of the studies are fascinating and how many more people will do things, then it costs you nothing except changing how you're interacting with people.
1: Well, and the thing I would add to that from the employee engagement side, I assume it creates much happier, more engaged, more productive employees. To have a boss who encourages, invites rather than... Now, again, building on fire, I'm going to tell people what to do. Absolutely. But for uh, the most part, the building's not on fire. Yeah. I can explain. And frankly, they learn when I explain and understand and, in the best cases, anticipate. And the next time, I may not even need to
2: ask. Yeah. I, I would say from firsthand experience when I ran the corporate university at my former company, when I would travel, and I traveled a good bit... I always felt like my employees were going to work even harder to just show me how well they could do things, and I would mm-hmm. come back and they would decorate my office, uh, welcoming me back and and things. So it was yeah. it was a great reciprocal relationship. But, you know, when you treat people as individuals, you treat them with respect, you're not authoritarian, you're asking, you're you're taking their ideas, all of these things that, that work in, I felt like I had an extremely engaged, happy, and productive team.
1: So, again, beautiful examples. We've talked about things we can practice. How do I master this?
2: The only way you master anything is by practice. I mean, if you're I were short-pats. talking about tennis and somebody went out and played tennis one time, they're not going to master it. They're going to have mm-hmm. to play tennis. Now, the good thing is, the good thing is, you can you can weave this into everything you do every day, mm-hmm. whether you're interacting with your kids or your spouse or or anybody else. So, it's going to take actual practice at first. Mm-hmm. But as I said earlier, your brain learns pretty quickly, and mm-hmm. then soon it's relegated to the back, and it's becoming the habit that you mm-hmm. need. So it's going to take that. The more you study this, the more you start seeing your opportunities to engage liking or reciprocity or scarcity, and then seize that opportunity and begin to do it. And you'll be pleasantly surprised. I've always seen that humans, for the most part, when they have success, they tend to want to repeat those Mm -hmm. behaviors.
1: So I can go home tonight and say to my partner, I'm practicing this new thing. I need to ask rather than tell. So point out when I don't do it. Point out when I don't explain why. Point out when I'm not using appropriately scarcity. We only have an hour before we get to yes. sleep, and I want to work out, whatever it is. So, enlisting a partner so that my practice doesn't seem weird to the people I work with.
2: Yes, that's a great example. My wife and I do that together. She pointed out that I used to say the word "whatnot" a lot, and mm-hmm. I I was totally unaware. I started catching myself. There are many times where she'll say, yeah, in response to something that doesn't need a response. And now I point that out and she catches herself. And we both have seen that just by that practice of that interaction, mm-hmm. that we're reducing our use of those particular words. And you're describing exactly the same thing. Hold me accountable. If I don't do it the right, point it out so that this becomes habit for me.
1: I'm done with care. No, yes. Not, not I'm going to poke you and tell you you're stupid. But yes. But back to I'm inviting help. In my improvement process. Yeah, I think
2: anytime you have a partner, it could be working out. It could be if you want to change your eating habits. When you have somebody there, that accountability partner, absolutely that helps.
1: So we were talking about practical ways that someone can apply the principles. Can mm-hmm. you give us another one that, that our listeners yeah. can use
2: quickly? Okay. Yeah, this is one of my favorites. When we talk about a principle called liking, and mm-hmm. I, I think all your listeners recognize this. If somebody likes you, they're more willing to do what you want. We've seen that throughout life. That's why when you're going to go out and you want to have fun, you call people you like. But what <laughs> Generally, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what people spend too much time doing is trying to get people to like them, right? Oh, well, if Maureen likes me, Maureen will do what I want. How can I get Maureen to like me? And sometimes you can come across like a used car salesman who will say or do anything to connect. And that's the wrong way to go about it. What people should focus on is how can I come to like this other person. I wanna find out about you so that I can find out what we have in common and talk about those things. Or I wanna look for things I can genuinely compliment you about. Why? Not so much because to get you to like me, but I realize that will make me like you. And here's why it's important. When you begin to get a sense that Brian really likes me, you become far more open to what I might ever ask because deep down we all believe friends do right by friends. And that's the most effective way to build a relationship, and ultimately have somebody like you is by taking that first step to like them first. And I saw this play out in my career. Uh, there was a time where I had to travel with somebody who I had a strong sense didn't want me around. Felt like I was kind of encroaching on his part of the company. So I had to put into practice all the things that I preach, and we found that we had some things in common. Mm -hmm. I realized he had been a power lifter in college. I had done that. He had run ultra marathons. I ran marathons many years ago. And when I really focused on connecting on those things, not to get him to like me, but thinking to myself, I wanna like him. If I'm gonna be on the road six of the next eight weeks, I want to like him. And that's what changed everything. And we're really good friends now, even though he left the company and now I've left the company, but we remained good friends.
1: You know, when I talk to people about resilience, that's one of the things I talk about in the managing my thinking part, That especially when I'm preparing for a difficult mm-hmm. conversation. Think about what I like about the person, what yep. I admire, what they've done well. That allows me to go in cleanly, mm-hmm. not angry, not worried, not bitter, because none of those things turn out well. Yep. As soon as I can find the commonality, and sometimes it's Hobby. I had a client whose mom had Alzheimer's, hmm. and he was taking care of her. It is easy to have empathy for someone who is doing something wonderful for someone else. Yes. E- even though he was occasionally cranky because his mom had Alzheimer's and he was taking care of her. So I I really appreciate hmm. that idea of instead of trying to make people like me, finding the space to have empathy, appreciation. And appreciation goes so far in (laughs) building bridges between people.
2: I've seen that. I've been married now for 31 years. And I have a playlist on my iPod. Mm -hmm. And it's called Jane. Mm -hmm. And it's all the songs that make me think positively about her. And so if I'm driving somewhere or we're going to get ready to go out and I'm playing that, it changes my mood. It puts me in a better mood when we're going to get ready to go out. I choose... To focus on the positive qualities. It's not that she doesn't have things that are wrong. We all mm-hmm. do. We're mm-hmm. all yeah. imperfect. But when I do that, I find my mood changes dramatically,
0: mm-hmm. which
2: which causes her to change toward me in a positive mm-hmm. way, too. Mm-hmm. It's not like she has to overcome anything. I walk in the door, and I'm in a good mood, and she knows I'm looking forward to seeing her, and it just makes everything flow more smoothly.
1: Mm-hmm. My partner Mike would say he he's wired with the happy gene. Mm-hmm. And so one of the questions when he comes home is what was the best thing that happened today? Mm-hmm. Because it's so easy for me to go into some long story about something odd or curious mm-hmm. or difficult. When in fact I feel better when I recount my biggest success of the day. Mm-hmm. I go back into the bad mood when I recount my biggest drama of the day. So there is something really important then about managing our own mood. Yep. It sounds like as well in the, our ability to connect. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And I would I would say you know along the lines of having good, healthy relationships too. When you engage reciprocity, you do kind things for people. They will appreciate that, and that changes their mood too. And and this was an extreme case, but I, when my wife turned fifty-two her birthday present was 52 gifts a gift a week for a year is what i gave her i built it up oh, and wow. told her you're going to get a gift nobody else has ever gotten at least that mm-hmm, i knew mm-hmm. and Some people might think, well, that was a lot of work, and in some ways it was. But once I got into it, it was fun. My daughter Mm -hmm. would go shopping with me, and she would tell me what my wife said, like, "Oh, I want to get this, but I don't feel like spending the money." And so I would get these gifts, and I'd always have them in a bin. And every Saturday or Sunday, I'd bring it up from the basement, and she could choose which she liked the choice. And it it just was great for everybody. I mean, she Mm -hmm. she loved it, and my daughter and I had a great time. And you know, better to give than receive. And so I, yeah, I got some out of it because of the good feelings. Mm-hmm. I think if people spent more time thinking about what can I do for this other person, they would have much more healthy relationships.
1: And I think that really underpins the entire construct is the healthy relationships allow us all to win. Yes. Not just win-lose, but life is complicated. And having people who are allies, who we trust, just makes the daily process of being alive mm-hmm. easier on the good days we have someone to celebrate with, and on the challenging days we have someone we can count on. Yep, This is really helpful, and hopefully our listeners are hearing things that they can apply very quickly so understanding the principles of influence allows us to leverage human psychology and increase the opportunity to hear that magic word everyone wants to hear when they make a request which is yes <laughs> if you take the time to learn the psychology of persuasion and apply these scientifically proven principles you'll enjoy more success in your career and personal life Brian can you let our listeners know again the name of your book where to find it anything about contacting you
2: okay so the book is again, is Influence People with the subtitle, Powerful Everyday Opportunities to Persuade that are lasting and ethical. And they'll be able to find it online at amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com, things like that. So they can get an e-version. They can get the the paperback version. I'm hoping before year end, I'll have an audible. They can find me on my website, InfluencePeople.biz. And if any listeners want to reach out and connect with me on LinkedIn, I'm, I'm happy to do that. If you don't tell me that you heard me on the show, I'll probably say, how'd you find me? Uh, but mm-hmm. I believe it should be social. So I like interacting with people that way.
1: Great. And for our listeners, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you join us again soon. I would love to hear your feedback. Info at InnovateLeader.com. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Also, let me know that you've listened to the show or connect with me on Facebook, Innovating Leadership.